cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned to the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri. I'll be your host for the next hour. Joined in studio by Greg Nicholson. Greg, sir, how are you doing today? It's good. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since I've been in studio, so it's nice to be back. I mean, you've been all faced off with the, with the, you know, with the army in Cape Town and stuff. I have to tell the story, so I'm just happy that you're here, all, yeah. all limbs intact. Good times. And we came back to this massive headlines, uh, specifically the Competition Commission's indictment of 16 banks um, for what they call forex rigging. Um, definitely far beyond my level of understanding. Um, I can barely deal in one currency, let alone two. Um, but we want to spend a bit of time over the next hour just digging into this, specifically around the banks and then going much broader. Um, there's been historical cases of this. You might remember over the news, things around bread, things around construction, especially around the World Cup. There was a big, a lot of stories around construction of a lot of the stadiums. And then the regulations, what's going on in South Africa, what's going on beyond. Um, this is not, is not a purely local problem. A lot of countries are grappling with this idea of, of competition. What is uncompetitive? What is, what is, um, to the disadvantage of the consumer ultimately? And how do we balance keeping, keeping investors, um, in our countries and in our markets, but at the same time making sure they play fair? So we'll be spending the next, the next hour with, 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 with experts in this field and really digging into it. Firstly, we're joined in studio by Tando Vilikazi, a senior economist from Center for Competition, Regulation and Economic Development at the University of Johannesburg. Tando, welcome to studio. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Secondly, we'll have on the line David Lewis, who's the executive director at Corruption Watch. Um, David, can you hear us okay? Okay, we just have, we just have, uh, our producers working on getting David on. Um, firstly, Tano, I'd just love to start with you. Um, these, these are big words, collusion, cartel, and, and we hear them, you know, here and there, but, uh, we'd love to actually just get from you a, a pretty just basic understanding of what, what is collusion? What is a cartel? Sure. Thanks, Kingsley. Um, Look, in basic terms, collusion, uh, as defined in the South African Competition Act, is uh, where firms that are in a horizontal con- competitive relationship, um, i.e. they sell the same product or okay. operate in the same product space, um, agree to either, for instance, fix prices or even agree certain quantities that they'll sell. Or, you know, uh, In some cases, you have what they call market allocation, where they'll say, look, in the South African context, they might say, well, you keep the Gauteng province. I won't compete with you there. Um, and I'll, I'll trade in the Western Cape and we'll kind of stay in each, stay out of each other's way. So there's various ways in which it plays out, but that's in essence what it's about. Okay. So we've got two companies. I'm selling, I'm going to say bread, but that's already part of the story, but I, I'm selling chappies. Greg is selling chappies. We're not supposed to be having conversations. We're two different services, puzzle shops. We're not supposed to be talking and saying, you take, you know, the north of Soweto. I take the south. <laughs> Let's play. Well, those conversations are not allowed. They're not supposed to be happening. Um, there are, Instances where within the, the kind of the bounds of the Competition Act where you can justify certain um, interactions between firms mm. um, on the grounds of efficiency. So, for instance, if you're an industry association of, uh, of doctors or hospitals, then there is some merit in having them agree mm. on certain standards and ways of operating such that consumers will ultimately benefit. So uh, if I'm charging for a particular service here, it should be similarly defined elsewhere in another firm. Those kind of things can be justified, but for the most part, uh, it's usually better to stay clear of chatting to your competitors. Okay. And and this seems to be closely linked with price. So you've talked about market allocation, and, and there seems to be a big... A big stance um, from the from the regulatory authority that you should not be setting in price your prices in line with each other. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, 
why? I think, in, I mean, I suppose it's a silly question, but it makes sense for me and, and Greg to say, you know what, rather than this guessing game of who's charging what, how about we just all agree that the, the book we sell is 50 bucks, everybody sells for 50 bucks. Consumers are happy with 50 bucks, we're happy with 50 bucks, everybody's happy. Yeah. Kingsley, I think you've actually answered that question right there. Um, and it's that in a kind of competitive market, um, where, um, comp- uh, firms are making independent strategy decisions in terms of what they price, what they sell, etc. Um, then you'll have the competitors actually competing to win the market. So I'll set my price at 45 Rand in your example mm. that you've used now to win the market. Um, why we might collude is exactly as you say, is that, well, we might agree that actually um, it's better to have the quiet life here. Let's not disrupt each other's yeah. businesses yeah. and agree to a 50 Rand price. No one will know. Um, but then effectively you're breaking the kind of definition of, of kind of a competitive market. Um, and there are different variations of this. In the construction cartel, it was the case of trading off different jobs and large projects uh, between the produ- uh, between the manufacturers and the construction firms. Um, but again, it's similar in that there you'd expect them to compete by basically submitting the best bid possible to win, say, the, the construction of a particular stadium. Mm. Instead, they agreed that, well, uh, instead of outbidding each other and all ending up with a very low bidding price, How's about you um, take, we kind of essentially take turns um, to construct different projects, and in that way everyone wins. Um, and so there's different dimensions of this, but essentially that's the outcome then is that uh, you and I as, as firms um, achieve higher profits than what might result in a competitive market. Those higher profits are unfortunately taken off the back of consumers that are paying for those goods unknowingly at a higher price. When I hear you, and especially the example I think of construction specifically when dealing with the state, really adds another whole dimension when that's taxpayer money being paid. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about collision uh, and uncompetitive behavior, which has been you know headlines for the past couple of days. You can send your questions through to at DM Shows Day on Twitter. We should now successfully have on the line David Lewis, our executive director from Corruption Watch. David, can you hear us? Yes, okay. Okay, wonderful. Um, David, we've just been uh, speaking to Tando here, and, and he's breaking down for us what is what is collusion, uh, what is a cartel. Now, now, David, in some of your writing, you've been you've been very straightforward, very clear that collusion is corruption. Um, could you break down for us exactly why, for you, there's just no there's no difference, and this these things are exactly the same? Well, I don't know that I've been that clear because I don't think that it is that clear. Uh, you know. Corruption usually involves an interface between the public sector and the private sector, or, in, or between a private person and a public official, let's say a traffic cop. Uh, it doesn't very often involve the private sector acting on its own. Collusion, because it is a conspiracy against the public, and you know, you pointed out earlier that where it involves public procurement, it's, uh, you know, it very directly implicates not only public consumers, but also uh, um, uh, public prices in, a, in a, the taxpayers. Um, it, it does fall within a broad definition of corruption. And in fact, technically speaking, I think it would fall within the provisions of the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act. So individuals could arguably, it's never been done before, be prosecuted as well under the uh, corruption legislation. Now, David, just building on that, um, 
you you've written somewhat about this 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 myth or this idea that that's that's pretty you know widely held by a lot of people that the that the private sector you know bears little responsibility for corruption and is not is not really part of that uh that that conversation that is that is mostly held around government and it's mostly when we talk about national government about local government um what what is the impact of 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 news like this that comes out and announcement like this that comes out when the private sector is now being you know being discussed and their conduct is being discussed around uncompetition i i I've, i've never said and corruption watch has never said that uh that the private sector are not implicated in corruption they clearly are the most the most costly corruption involves an interaction between a private supplier of goods and services, a private firm that supplies goods and services, and a public official who buys goods and services. That's the most common and most costly form from a Rands and Sense perspective that corruption takes. So it's clearly about the, the private sector. What we do, however, hold is that you know, one shouldn't have too many illusions about the the way in which a profit-maximizing private sector operator will go about his business. And there are laws and regulations that are meant to ensure that he competes within a given set of rules. And the reason why we elect public representatives and the reason why we elect a public sector or why we appoint a public sector is partly to ensure that private people, private citizens as well as private firms, uh, respect and abide by the rules that are set uh, to to prescribe their conduct. You have real trouble when the public sector is part of the problem. And that's why, uh, to my mind, dealing... Uh, directly with the public sector is most important in this regard because the public sector belongs to us and public representatives belong to us. And if they were doing their jobs properly, the private sector would find it very difficult to engage in corruption because there are rules, there are regulations, and there is private conduct that's regulated to prevent them from doing so. But absolutely the private sector are implicated in corruption and much of our litigation and much of our policy advocacy is actually directed at the private sector rather than the public sector because of their involvement. But I repeat, the public sector is what belongs to us and it's the public sector who are meant to constrain their conduct and punish those who violate it. But they don't too often, with the exception of the Competition Commission and the Competition Tribunal, which does actually act against people who transgress their laws. But if you look at the Hawks and if you look at the NPA, you'll see why we have as much corruption as we do. David, with a lot of... um Obviously, this issue now is is very politicized, and I think a lot of people listening might think that you're actually going quite easy on the private sector here and saying that that they have little responsibilities. No, I mean, I think the private sector absolutely has responsibility. This, this is, as I said earlier, a form collusion is a form of, 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 of corruption in which it is only the private sector involved. And this responsibility for this belongs to those private sector operators who have engaged in this 
cartel activity, in this collusion activity. The difference is we have in the competition authorities a, a, a group of a, a family of regulators who will, when they see their act having been transgressed, will investigate the allegations, and if the allegations are borne out, they will prosecute the, the the transgressors as they are doing now, and they will take them to the competition tribunal, and everybody will get a fair and free hearing, and if the competition commission proves its case, the transgressors will be punished. That's the difference here. Uh, the, 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 the problem is that where we see people, particularly people with political power and with wealth, engaged in corrupt activity that is not within the remit of the competition authority that has to be investigated by the police and prosecuted by the NPA, we find that the public agencies are not up to it. They are not doing so, either because they don't have the resources or they don't have the competence or they are riddled with corruption themselves. And that's the difference between these two cases. It's not about whether the private sector are involved or not, or whether I'm going easy on the private sector or not. It's because we have a public sector agency in this area that is effective. We don't get many complaints about collusion. We get a hell of a lot of complaints about procurement and about nepotism, but we don't get many complaints about collusion. And the reason we don't is that the public know that if they have a collusion issue to investigate, they can take it to the competition authorities and they can expect something to be done. They don't expect the same when they take it to the police or to the prosecuting authority. That's why they come to us. Tando, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with um, with Dave mm. uh, in that the competition agencies, in terms of their track record, uh, in terms of cartel conduct at least, mm. um, have been quite successful in terms of uncovering cartel conduct. Um, but what the international studies will tell you and what the experience in Europe and the States as well will tell you is that um, we've most likely only uncovered the kind of the tip of the iceberg um, um, in terms of the, the extent of collusive conduct that exists in an economy. Um, if you consider that, you know, we've had many large cases, the, the kind of the bread cartel, the constructions that you mentioned earlier, and now this very large bank cartel. Um, uh, and even then, uh, the expectation is that there's even more um, kind of uh, illicit conduct going on in the economy that hasn't been uncovered. And I think this speaks to, to some degree, the limitations that even the competition authorities, as competent as they are, uh, face in terms of, of uncovering this conduct. Um, firms, I suppose the economics of it is that firms will assess um, within their own kind of calculations the likelihood of getting caught mm. and, and whether they, and the fines that they expect to pay if they are caught. Uh, and they might, might weigh that up and it would be rational to say, well, look, um, I expect a particular fine from this kind of conduct. We know that in the South African Act, it's capped at 10% of total turnover annual um, in the Republic. Uh, and so it might pay off actually, uh, at least in terms of the economics mm. and theory. Um, to collude and then simply pay the fine uh, for one year's conduct um, somewhere down the line. And there are those problems. What this tells you as well is that, and what the international studies tell you is that um, the kind of overcharge, so the, the kind of extra markup that, uh, mm -hmm. that colluding firms are often earning um, in cartels are somewhere in the region of kind of 15 to 25% above what would be a competitive price in the market. So if they were competing. Um, and you consider that relative to the fines that are levied and it already tells you that there's a 
um, there's a serious challenge for the competition authorities in terms of deterring and stopping and uncovering all of this conduct. And so there's still some way to go as successful as they have been. I mean, absolutely. I mean, David, no, we have to let you go soon. But I'm curious, just before that, um, I mean, as a corruption watch, when you when you sort of sit back and you've mentioned you get a lot of you get a lot of um, sort of complaints and 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 people reaching out to you around procurement, around nepotism, around tenders, and and not so much around some of the other collusion things. But when you when you sit back strategically and are trying to you know think about this matter of corruption and the, trying to create, I suppose, the the greatest public good in regard right, to I'm corruption. Sorry, this line is just going blank. Sorry, can you hear me, David? I can't hear you. Uh, okay, we'll just chat to producers to see if they if they can sort of sort of fix that um, in the in the short term. Tando, back to you. Um, um, so I wanted to just sort of before we we get into the next bit, just to on the on the on the matter of as we start to define this issue of collusion and this issue of a cartel, and I see the question around why why is this such a bad thing? And I'm thinking if we go back to the silly example of the. Of the of the fifty rand charges um, for certain book, and Greg and I in our different shops have agreed this is the price. I'm thinking if the if this company, you know, makes perhaps that extra five rand per book and is still paying taxes and is still employing people, there's an argument to be made that it's all staying in the economy and on the whole, everybody's still okay. <laughs> Yeah, Kingsley, that's a, that's an interesting and kind of yeah. difficult question. Yeah. Not so silly, actually. Um, in that there are debates around the kind of the welfare standard that yeah. you might consider. So uh, you might say, well, the producers benefit, they stay in business, they employ people. Yeah. And so in net, society benefits, and yeah. so there shouldn't be such a problem. Mm. Um, but in a developing country context where um, uh, firms are colluding on some of the most basic needs, uh, goods, uh, in terms of bread, etc., and banking services and whatnot, um, you have to pay particular attention to the concern of our consumers paying too much for the services that they're, that they're receiving. Um, I think the most egregious kind of instance of this in the South African in, uh, case is, 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 is the bread cartel of around 2009 when Pioneer was prosecuted, mm. where effectively firms were colluding uh, to make the price of bread more expensive um, in some very simple terms. And obviously there are many qualifiers to that. Mm. Um, I suppose you tell me whether that's, uh, <laughs> that's reasonably acceptable. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in principle, and I mean, we're not a kind of com- competition idealist, you know, markets don't work like that. There is no free market really. But ideally what you'd want is you want your companies competing to get that extra rand from the consumer. So if they're offering better services, better quality, better distribution, then they can charge for that. That's perfectly okay. Um, but they must also kind of, you expect firms to bear in mind the strategies of their competitors as well and seek to undercut them to win the, that customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this means in terms of consumer welfare is choice and, and kind of quality competition as well. Right. And so that extra five rand may mean, um, quite a lot for, for, for someone out there, um, particularly on, on key goods such as bread. Um, and so if you suppose you ask me where I lean, I lean on the side of there is a problem with collusion. It's particularly significant. If firms can justify, as I said earlier, um, certain instances of collusion um, on the grounds of efficiencies or that those benefits are being passed through to consumers somehow, um, then they're welcome to make that case mm-hmm. to the commission uh, who will evaluate the evidence and kind of make a ruling on that. But uh, so far, it's, it's particularly difficult case to prove. And absolutely. I mean, I think that, I think thanks for reintroducing the bread example. I think I, I definitely agree that my own argument falls apart. <laughs> uh, and I think the inequality in the country, I think, consistently disproves this idea that if you know if the firms are bigger and they're paying their producers more, and everybody gets more and everybody wins. Yeah. It sounds like 
that some people are getting more than yeah. others. So you saying? Yeah, and I mean, I think this links to an earlier point that Dave made, um, which which. Uh, I thought I'd comment on as well, which we've is lost that. Dave, by the way, so we'll have to get him, get him another time. <laughs> we'll get him through the internet somehow. Um, um, and it's that we we often try to kind of pigeonhole um, conduct as private sector, as public sector, corrupt officials. It's all government and all of that. <laughs> um, when in actual fact, these arrangements in real life are actually very, very complex and involve both public and private sectors to some degree. If you think about the cement cartel, which existed in South Africa for. Um, more than 40 years, in fact. Um, it began, or it's in its foundation, was actually a government-legislated arrangement to enable the producers to kind of coordinate very large, expensive investments in capacity and all of that. So there is a justification in that case. Okay, so the government stepped in and said, hey, this is a strategic yeah, so industry, guys, yeah. and we we allow for you guys to work together because, you know, for, and, and they are benefits everybody forward, benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that very same group of firms, once the kind of legal cartel arrangement was ended in '94. Um, uh, then kind of made public promises around saying, well, then now we'll compete in an open market and we're looking forward to the challenge and supplying the country in terms of supporting RDP housing and all this. Um, but then the firms entered into a secret cartel, uh, which lasted until 2009. Um, and the evidence that exists already shows that the markups on that, so the higher the prices were higher by around 10% or more for a period of close to 15 years. And that tells you, uh, the extent to which the economy has kind of suffered under the weight of that conduct. And if you're talking about concrete providers for people building RDP houses and other, you know, yeah. all sort of construction across the country, that must amount across to a fortune. Yeah, absolutely across the board. And there's guys, I mean, my own, some of my own research is actually seeking to estimate the extent of this harm and it's significant. Um, and to just maybe make the point further about how, uh, often government and, and, and that and these relations kind of intertwine, I guess, uh, we've been looking at a cartel that existed in Zambia in fertile which again is very important for an ag- agrarian economy, right? Um, and that existed between two large um, uh, fertilizer providers. But actually, when you dig into it, um, the cartel had elements of, of, of interests and kind of uh, what you might call uh, back payments, etc., and corruption that involves certain public sector officials as well. Uh, which makes studying that cartel particularly interesting. And so it just tells you that perhaps rather than pigeonholing some of these issues, um, it's good to consider corruption and kind of harm to the consumer broadly, regardless of who's inflicting that. Okay. If you're just tuning in, it's a daily Mavic show on cliffcentral.com. Uh, thanks for the tweets on DM shows that day, and we'll just go through and, on anything that pops up there. Uh, as mentioned earlier, we're speaking to Tando Viligazi, a senior economist uh, from the Center for Competition, Regulation, and Economic Development at the University of Johannesburg. Now, now Tando, you mentioned earlier that you spent some time at the, at the, at the Competition Commission itself and, and mentioned a specific case that you sort of worked very closely on, specifically around a, a, gla- a cartel in the glass industry. Now I'd love if you could just you know talk us through that as we um, as you've you know done somewhat with with cement uh, or concrete rather um, of just what what were the details of of that of that particular industry what 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 to what benefit was that collusion and how did that sort of go forward into the actual case and investigation around yeah um, that is a particularly interesting case and I mean much of this information is now available on the competition tribunal's website and that so I'm not uh, You're not in trouble breaking privilege yeah. in any way um, but just basically you'll find that cartels occur far far more easily um, in industries where the goods are very similar there's a standard product you okay. know cement glass products etc whereas you know in consumer goods uh, one tomato sauce is not necessarily the mm. same as another so it's not easy to collude around that 
Um, and so in this particular case, glass products, uh, the firms uh, had particular arrangements around windscreens, around um, flat, uh, flat sheet glass as well, um, which involved effectively keeping a tight knit kind of arrangement by geographic territory in South Africa. Mm. So you might have two or three of the kind of eight producers uh, not producers, manufacturers in that case, um, colluding uh, to set prices and agree kind of market conditions in the Bloemfontein area, for instance. And then you have a different set of firms operating, um, say, in Eastern Cape, which was, which was the case. Okay. Um, uh, but nationally, there would be an agreement to kind of allocate market shares and keep, um, keep that market as it was. Um, uh, importantly, and I think this is a part about cartels that often isn't spoken about, is that by their nature, um, if you think, I mean, if you and I uh, and Greg are sitting in a, in a kind of nice, cozy market arrangement with each other earning extra profits, um, the last thing you want is some maverick or some new person to come in and try and kind of disrupt what we have, yeah. right? the kind of quiet life that we're enjoying, yeah. profitable life that we're enjoying. Um, and so cartels tend to deal very strongly with entrants. Um, in an economy such as South Africa, where you have mm. very concentrated markets, you mm-hmm. have a particular concern around that, uh, be it via imports or be it by new producers setting up and trying to compete in those markets. Which is a very interesting point where, where there's a lot of talk about creating uh, black industrialists yep. these days and transforming industries. Cartels, I guess, effectively block any sort of progress on, on, on those ambitions. Yeah, that's true. They block any sort of progress on that. And often we don't know it until it's too late. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, you, wouldn't have, you might not have uncovered a cartel in that industry, but for some reason your entrants are struggling to enter there. Um, and this can happen in many different ways. So uh, firms can create the kind of reputation for undermining anyone who tries to challenge them. Um, for instance, if a fourth guy comes in here and starts to sell whatever we're selling, what they might do is they might flood the market for a period of time mm. until that firm becomes completely yeah. unviable and yeah. exits the market. And yeah. then we return to our kind of cozy three-man arrangement. It sounds like we had a cartel to get David off the line. It's kind of like So they're very complex and interesting arrangements to study, um, which is why I think the Competition Authority uh, places a lot of emphasis, at least from my experience mm. there, on having very um, capable teams of investigators and that working on cases. So you'll have teams of economists and lawyers within the uh, competition authority working to investigate matters. Um, um, and very well-trained kind of investigators in terms of uh, conducting drain, uh, dawn raids, for instance, um, to uncover information. Because if they know you're coming, they're going to hide the information. So those are us- very useful tools for them. How How... Are these investigations conducted? So, for example, in the um, if we look at the glass case, or, or we could just talk about any sort of case, mm. does it usually come from a tip off from inside someone in the cartel, or how how do or somebody ops- who got muscled out of the of the industry? <laughs> yeah, and, and then how how is then investigations conducted thereafter? Yeah, um, I think that's that's a great question, um, and again the the. I suppose the options are quite varied. Mm. Um, often you'll have a firm that um, perhaps decides to break on its own, decides to break um, out of the arrangement, perhaps because of a change of management or a change of company culture, which can happen, believe it. Um, <laughs> um, and so might decide to come forward if they sense that uh, this thing is about to break and I'd rather get in there first. And this is where the leniency policy of the commission mm-hmm. comes in. Uh, so you are able as a firm to come forward to the competition commission. And if you were the first through the door, 
um, and if you can provide sufficient evidence to show that this was an existing cartel and these are the firms involved, etc., then you're able to effectively confess in exchange for zero penalty. If you snitch, you get off lightly. If you snitch, you if get you off snitch lightly. First, yeah. you get <laughs> if you snitch first, you get off If you snitch first, that's an important po- important qualifier. In other countries, there's still prizes if you come second. Um, but in South Africa, it's only the first, uh, which has been a very important thing because a lot of the cartels that have been uncovered in South Africa since about uh, – so the competition – um, corporate leniency policy mm. came into effect in 2004, but it really came into into full function around um, 2007. And a lot of the cartels that have been uncovered have come through that. That's being firms coming forward and admitting and then busting their friends, basically. Um, but sometimes it comes up through other cases as well where the commission might be investigating a merger transaction, for instance. Um, and in looking at that merger, they realize that, well, uh, the company documents of the company seems to suggest that there's something sinister going on here as well. And a number of cases have been uncovered in that way. And then the whole thing explodes into a broader cartel investigation. Mm-hmm. So there's a range of things. Sometimes uh, it's even just consumers, certain consumer groups or uh, downstream maybe um, customers of those firms that complain, as in the bread cartel case. Mm-hmm. There was actually a, a man in, in Western Cape who said something's wrong here um, and effectively blew the whole thing open. Mm-hmm. Then the investigations proceed. You mentioned things like dawn raids, which, you know, I, w- I was, wasn't thinking the Consumer Commission would have that sort of capability, but it sounds very, um, Hollywood almost. Mm. Um, but the investigation proceeds with both detective type types as well as a, a econom- uh, economists, you were saying. Yeah. Um, so your e- economists in those teams will tend to be uh, required, particularly insofar as you have to analyze a lot of the information. So, mm-hmm. um, a lot of cartel conduct can be, I suppose, evidenced through price data and all of this kind of information that can be collected from the firms. And so your economist teams actually, I suppose, provide the support in terms of proving the case, if mm-hmm. you will, um, in combination with the lawyers and that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our own work in this area, I mean, shows that uh, I suppose a lot of authorities in this in this um, in this region, and I speak about Southern Africa and kind of East Africa particularly. Um, are still very much understaffed in this regard. So their teams are maybe not as large, et cetera, mm-hmm. and under-resourced in terms of funding because these are expensive investigations as well, mm. uh, which is a big challenge that a lot of countries face. So they may have the legislation in place and they may have penalties on paper um, that they can be they can find firms, but in practice it's very difficult to find these cases. Um, what's unfortunate is that it's often the very same firms that collude in South African cartels that actually have business operations in the other countries as well that kind of start the same conduct there. So it's a very sinister little world, this, I guess. Mm-hmm. When when we follow the whole process through, and so if we look at um, the construction cartel, for example, I think went into a fast-track settlement or something like that and ended up paying you know, a number of billions of rand. Um, and so there's a lot of talk about the banks at the moment and how, how the Consumer Commission is pushing forward for 10% of their affected revenue for that period. Um, so essentially these guys, these big, big businesses, get charged fines, maybe up to 10% of, of their revenue or something like that. But then I think you wrote recently that it is widely accepted that fines for cartels are not adequate to, t- to deter collusive conduct and damages will not sufficiently compensate for the harm caused to the economy as a whole, particularly through deterring entry. So what it sort of looks like in this case is you mentioned the, the economic benefits companies might weigh up in terms of in terms of getting into a cartel. Sometimes they can get it seem seems like a slap on the wrist, a, a fine that may not break them or anything like that. Mm. And they actually may make, you know, quite a bit of money off, off being able to, let's say, set the price of bread. 
Um, and in that dynamic, I don't see how we can actually continue to sort of cut down on cartels and and let's say let's say if there's a if there's a graph get the trajectory of how many cartels yeah. there are out there going mm. down because it actually seems to be quite profitable to join a cartel yeah um yeah i mean i think you're in line with with uh, a lot of or, or a good chunk of the literature that's coming out of europe right now mm. um which is precisely that point that even there right with very sophisticated agencies with 10 times the number of people that investigate these cases as as we have here uh, you have that issue around um, the kind of tip of the iceberg of, of cartels uncovered. Um, some might say it's a slip on the wrist, sla- um, slap on the wrist, but I think maybe um, one way to think about it is that it also varies by the type of firm you're dealing with, right? So 10% of total turnover of a firm that only sells that product, right, um, is 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 effectively 10% out of their whole business, right? And so that firm is likely to be in danger and will consider the risk of collusion far greater than another firm, such as the big banks in this case, that will have, yes, their foreign kind of foreign currency trading desks, yeah. but also as part of far larger retail and kind of corporate businesses and trading businesses that they run. Um, and so, yeah, in that context, you might say it might be a slap on the wrist, Um Especially when you consider how long this has been going on for, mm. right? So the penalties will, in the, in the jurisdiction, uh, historically used to be calculated based on, or in terms of the act or calculated based on one year's, um, um, annual turnover, right? Mm. Um, but if you think that the cartel has been running for several years, uh, it means it's definitely a slap on the wrist. Mm. But I'll tell you what's happened in this regard is that, um, the, the competition tribunal and, and the kind of case law has evolved to incorporate, um, a multiplier for duration, right? Into the fine that's that's being charged, um, uh, it's quite a complex process. But basically, the tribunal is now factoring in, and the competition authorities have followed. Is now factoring in the extent of duration of the cartel into calculating the penalty, uh, and then they'll kind of consider other mitigating and aggregating factors. Uh, for instance, if you were a ringleader in the cartel, so you caused the whole thing to take place and you kept it running, mm. then you're likely to then. Uh, face a fine even higher than your peers in, in the same within the same cartel arrangement in that. So the law is evolving to okay. catch up, um, and it's certainly on the agenda of the authorities to 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 increase the kind of penalties on this, um, including through criminal sanctions and that as well, which has now recently come into the South African uh, context. Could you speak more about the criminal sanctions? I mean, in some of your writing, you um, you listed other countries, I think of Swaziland, Malawi, and Kenya that have had legislation for a while that's saying people can be criminally responsible. Mm. I think it's up to five years in some other countries. Could you speak more about the, the sort of the, the the changes on that uh, on a local front? Yeah. Um, so we we we. we and I mean, this information is, is available on our website, uh, www.competition.org.za and various articles that we've written on these issues. Um, but this particular one speaks about the fact that, yes, a lot of the countries have had um, uh, kind of criminal sanctions for yeah. cartel conduct against directors or manage- managers directly involved in the conduct available for many years. But the trick with that is always the prosecution, um, because once you enter into the kind of criminal realm, um, criminal law realm, it's a bit more difficult. It involves the, typically involves the prosecuting authority of that country in, in taking the case forward. And so it gets a bit more complicated. Okay. 
Um, in South Africa currently, uh, the legislation that's come in is that there's a potential penalty of 500,000 to the individual, 500,000 rands, okay. or up to, I think it's 10 years, um, 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 jail time. Oh, I might have those the other way around, but and it's who, generally there, which just, is a new development and a very important one. Just quickly, who would that individual be? Like, for, for example, in the bank trading case, mm-hmm. there's a list of all these traders, you know, that worked at various banks. Would it be those guys particularly, or would it be a CEO of a bank? How does it work? Yeah. So it's, um, the, I suppose the, the rule of thumb, and, and, and this hasn't been tested in our cases yet, so we don't know where we'll end up on this, but the rule of thumb internationally is that it's the individual, um, or a manager that's directly involved in the kind of the, the, the decision making around the cartel conduct, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have some firms that come in where the board member, and this happened in the glass cartel as well, where the board member says, I actually had no clue. Um, um, this is shocking. We can't believe this has happened under our watch and all of this. Uh, and so in that case, you might consider that the actual agent involved in making the conduct happen was probably some uh, lower level manager or, or MD or someone and that that might be the person liable in that case although like I say uh, there's a lot to this and and it, it remains to be tested in our context I mean uh, something you mentioned I think has come up in a few of these things there seems to be a, a lack of perhaps case law on this and precedent on this it sounds like a few things is yet to be tested or we'll see how it goes is there is that is that perhaps an obstacle that the the commission and the tribunals have having to grapple with is that a lot of these things are being defined for the first time or having to be tried for the first time yeah. um uh can you see not at all actually i think certainly in terms of of South Africa as a jurisdiction i think we're quite advanced in terms of the the kind of developments in the case law so um Certainly in terms of cartels. I okay. mean, we were probably one of the few very successful developing country agencies in this regard. Um, and are kind of held up amongst our peers, if you will. Um, I speak as if I still work there. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just objectively as well, it's, it's been a very successful part of the work of the commission. Um, when I speak about things being tested in the law, I suppose, is that it's the nature of this kind of process where firms have the right to bring additional information and contest the case against them in the tribunal. Um, and the tribunal will make ruling and set different precedent at different points in time that will change the kind of course of the way the law is practiced in the country. Uh, that being said, uh, I think in terms of cartel conduct, it is quite straightforward. And I think the, the, the issues that remain to be tested around criminal sanctions uh, that I was mentioning now are, are only really because, and I say that only really because that's a very recent amendment. And I think that it first went through around 2000, um, 2009 or maybe within the last kind of five years or so. So it's, okay. it's very much new, although the authorities existed since around 1999. Um, and so other practices have been tested and there's a good precedent for them. And firms know what to expect in terms of certainty. Um, but perhaps on these new dimensions, it's something to be tested. If once these companies are fined, they pay their fines, I understand the money goes, I think, it's to the National Revenue Fund. What happens with it then? Where does that money go? <laughs> um, look, as I understand it, and this is uh, potentially probably above my pay grade as well, um, but... Um, the the money effectively the national revenue fund is, is treasury right mm-hmm. and so the money goes back into into the kind of the fiscus if you will mm-hmm. um, the the distinction is made with uh, revenue from um, mergers merger cases evaluated so you know that if a firm if firms seek to merge they then have to file the, uh, notify the commission of that intention to merge and the commission will assess it 
uh, on the basis of the size of those firms and the likely effect on the economy and that mm. and competition. Um, that revenue is retained within the competition authorities, and that's important okay. for helping the functioning of the authorities. Okay. But um, fines from abuse of dominance, uh, settlements, and cartel conduct and that are generally straight to the Re- National Revenue Fund. Interestingly on this, I mean, we've recently done work on barriers to entry in the South African economy, and one of our big mm. proposals around this is to say, well, there may be an opportunity to use these funds, and this work is available on our website again, uh, to use the, these these fines to actually reinvest in the economy, if you will. So setting up funds to support small businesses, kind of pas- patient capital uh, rather than kind of commerce capital that allows firms to actually grow and develop and contest these markets that have mm. otherwise been highly concentrated for so long. Uh, and we've kind of laid that out in a number of documents on our website, mm. uh, which is www.competition.org.za. That would be a really interesting sort of organic way to, for me, that's still in the same same realm, but saying rather than sanctions being our only tool, perhaps, mm. what if we help some of the little guys who are getting muscled out of yeah. some of these tough industries? I think in that paper, I think you were talking about that's where you link it to funding black industrialists. Yeah. Um, which sort of raises the question for me when, obviously, when this is being discussed and with such, um, discussed sort of publicly and with the political climate we have right now and this issue, um, being used in all sorts of different ways when, when it comes to the banks. I just wondered how you feel. Um, I'm not sure how you can answer this question, but when you think about these issues of, um, of collusion, of, you know, whether we call it corruption or not, but by these, you know, often quite large corporates, especially if we're talking about banks, hmm. when you think about the country's development and transformation, um, and efforts around that, is it something that just sort of really, you know, frustrates you? Is this why you do the work you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's precisely it. I think these issues, um, are often under, um, or poorly understood in developing countries, the extent to which corporate conduct of this nature, um, and I won't speak about the kind of corruption issues and fra- kind of financial fraud, et cetera, just specifically collusion in that, um, actually undermine the development trajectory of countries. Um, as I was mentioning earlier about the fertilizer case, cartel case in, in, in Zambia, mm-hmm. those are the two only main producers. Um, and so in an agrarian, largely agrarian economy, um, where, or oh, with a significant agrarian kind of um, um, population in that, which basically means that farmers, in terms of growing food for sustaining those economies, were paying way more for very important inputs than what they were supposed to. That alone, I think, is enough to to justify the kind of research that's now emerging to say, how do you take what we've learned from proving and testing these cartel cases in a legal framework uh, through competition authorities and translate it to understanding better how uh, economies actually work, um, how these, this conduct and this kind of behavior, be it abuse of dominance by a large monopolist or co- uh, collusion, um, actually undermines the ability of new firms to enter and compete in, in, in different markets. Um, as I was saying in the example earlier, your instinct, if you're in that position, in a strong position of market power as a firm, is to protect that position. And that mm-hmm. may mean undermining anyone who tries to compete with you in that space. In a country where we're struggling to create even a hundred black industrialists, for example, and, and, and I think that's a very commendable project, but it's got its, its, its constraints. Um, it's important to start thinking about these issues. So is it just about funding when we talk about developing businesses, for instance, which is essentially at the core of this, of this program, or are there other measures and kind of 
issues that we need to think about when we speak about opening markets to participation, meaningful participation, where you and I can come together, start a competitive business, and if we're good enough, win without anyone kind of, I suppose, bullying us out of the market, mm. to put it in very simple terms. Those are real issues at the heart of kind of even the research that we're currently busy with. Okay. And, and, and when you see, perhaps, for example, the banks now, when you see this on the headlines every day and, and, and a lot of attention such as this show digging into this and digging into other, other industries have been accused of this. Do you, is it, is there, is it fair to say that perhaps there's a momentum around the commission, around the tribunal and around general awareness about this behavior and that perhaps it's becoming more and more costly either socially or financially to engage in this behavior or do you think it's you know we talk about it for three or four days then it goes back to normal yeah. and then it's only <laughs> you guys and the co- in the commission that that you know that remembers that this is this is a big feature of economy yeah. um i think that's a great yeah. question i think we um yeah we might be the only guys losing sleep over this <laughs> <laughs> no but i think there is a growing public yeah. awareness of this and the commission works very hard uh, to kind of get uh, media coverage around their cases and that but I think you're right, and I think what you're saying reveals a kind of, I suppose, a strange balance of things in yeah. our country, which is that, uh, maybe to use an example, Ganja was 250 million rands, and we kind of had hoo-ha about that for a number of years, rightfully so. I mean, right? still do. Yeah, we still, still do, rightfully yeah. so, and I, and, and I don't take anything yeah. away from those debates. But uh, if you consider the scale at which colluding firms are profiting mm. off the back of consumers directly – even just in the bread cartel, uh, and you only need to look at the size of the fines, which I've already told you are kind of only a fraction of what they've benefited mm. themselves as firms over a number of years. We should be talking about this issue more, and we aren't, and that's, and that's of concern. Now, I love that you brought this up, um, and we're going to have to let you go in a second. In that, and Greg and I spoke a bit about this on the car, in the cars. People seem to be pretty confident around the, the, the boogeyman or the, the, the enemy of white minority capital, um, and the banks. Monopoly. And large, yeah, and large, and large companies without having any interest in going into the details of things like collision, of, you know, things like anti-competition or illicit financial flows, flows, which Greg, you've written on quite a bit. Um, and, I'm, and I think I'm trying to sit here and debate and perhaps you can speak more about how, how helpful is it? Is it helpful? And you'll just take the allies you can get. People who are saying, no, the banks are the enemy. We must occupy Absa. Do you, uh, <laughs> do you, do you welcome allies like that? Or is it like, I mean, sure, but we're talking about details. We're not talking about this boogeyman that we just like to bring up whenever the president's corrupt, uh, corruption charges come up. We're talking about details where there's, there's legislation, there's, there's, there's actual, actual lawyers and people like you that are yeah. digging into this. So how, how have you found the general, Attention on this and the different allies that perhaps come in and out of, of your world. How are you, how are you find yeah. these conversations coming up? Kingsley, that yeah. is, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, for me, and this is now my yeah. personal view, yeah. I guess, and not that of cred, yeah. um, is that change often happens in these very uncomfortable places, uh, in these very uncomfortable spaces as a society where people are debating issues mm. very vociferously mm. and, and contesting ideas and Pointing fingers and calling um, calling people white monopoly capital or uh, fees must fall, etc. Um, and I'm not saying that necessarily that's the way to go. What I'm saying is that there's something about the fact that we're now talking about the banks and what's happened in this collusion case. Okay. That's very important for the economy. Um, the next steps are the ones that will be taken by the regulators and the kind of national treasury and whoever's looking at the follow on from this issue. But to get it on the agenda, I think it's important sometimes to make a noise about it. Um, uh, and this is particularly the issue that we kind of try to press on about is that 
the way we view it, or the way I view it, certainly, is that you know, the, for instance, this concept of a white monopoly capital. Yep. Um, we kind of simply say, whatever you frame it, uh, you have a country which has got a legacy of highly concentrated state-supported industries, um, either concentrated in terms of cartel conduct or as monopolies that simply haven't transformed in terms of opening up for competitors in those sectors. That is a problem for a country that needs to create jobs and sustainable growth going forward, however you vote and whatever whatever you term those monopolies and those concentrations of capital in our economy. Um, nonetheless, we have to be having that debate. Simple as that. I don't think there's a better place to leave off from there. Tando Villagazi from the uh, Center for Competition, Regulation and Economic Development. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and break break these sort of complex terms down for us. And we look forward to having you on in the future. Sure. Thank you so much, guys. Um, uh, just again to alert people to the kind of research that we're doing, and it cuts across all these areas that we've been talking about, barriers to entry, regional integration, etc., and obviously competition. And that's all available on our website, which is www.competition.org.za, uh, and the name of the organization is the CCRED in short cred. Oh, wonderful. We'll make sure to put that in the blurb and we've shared some of your sort of papers on, on our Twitter. Okay, from Greg Nicholson, I, Kings Kipuri, thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, you can download and share the podcast. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.